You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. The text for this morning's sermon is Acts 9, 1-19. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and his eyes were opened. He saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call upon your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen servant of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we are, we're so grateful to be gathered here this morning to hear from your word, to sing praises to your name. We're grateful for the ministry of the Holy Spirit who takes the truth of God's word and and drives it into our hearts and our minds, who renews us through His powerful work. We're grateful to be reminded of the gospel. That we who were lost, dead in our trespasses and sins, were made alive together with Christ. 
So, Father, we ask that you would humble us, fill our hearts with gratitude as we consider your word this morning. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive what you have for us. <clears throat> we commit our time to you. And we ask for these things in the strong name of our resurrected Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 is where we'll be, as you know. Thank you, Mike, for reading that text for us. This weekend, we hosted another Redeemer 101 class. Redeemer 101 is designed for people who are new to Redeemer and interested in church membership. The class gives us an opportunity as, as leaders in the church to share our church's vision and mission and ministries. We get to talk about our doctrine and our practice, answer questions that those in attendance might have. But before we cover any of that, There's something we do with each and every class. It's this. We, we ask each person in attendance to share a brief testimony of how they came to faith in Christ. I love hearing these stories. And do you know that no two stories are exactly the same? Some grew up in Christian homes and heard the gospel as far back as they can remember. Others didn't hear the gospel until later in life. Some lived fairly moral lives, while others more openly pursued a sinful lifestyle. Some can't even remember the precise time they embraced the gospel by faith, while others remember the exact moment. Some have admitted that they think their conversion story is kind of boring, while others have a testimony that sounds like a movie script. Christian friends, whatever the details of your story might be, if you've been converted by the power of God, made new by the Holy Spirit, then your story is a miraculous and wonderful story. It's a testimony worth celebrating. In fact, I want you to reflect on your own story during our study this morning. In today's text, we encounter what some have called the most famous conversion in the history of the church. The most famous conversion in the history of the church. So let's walk through this glorious text together. This is the true story of the miraculous conversion of a man named Saul. But I want you to notice where chapter 9 begins. It begins with Saul's evil mission. Saul's evil mission. Look with me at verse 1. But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. Here we find Saul doing what he's been doing since we met him back in chapter 7, verse 58. If you want to flip back there, speaking of the brutal murder of Stephen, the text says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then remember the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his, Stephen's, execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So coming into chapter 9, Here's what we know about Saul. He's a wicked man. He's a wicked man, a terrorist in every sense of the word. His heart burns with hatred for followers of Jesus. He played some part in Stephen, Stephen's execution. At the very least, he approved or he was pleased with the stoning of Stephen. Saul's passion was the persecution of Christians and the extermination of Christianity. In fact, to use his own words as he later wrote to the Galatians, he said, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. In summary, friends, Saul's mission is to do everything he can to stop God's mission to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so to accomplish his mission, he now needs to track down disciples of Jesus that are no longer in Jerusalem. He needs to capture them and bring them back to Jerusalem by force. So he gets permission from those with authority to travel the 135 miles to Damascus, where he will search for and seize disciples of the Lord Jesus. Sometimes we forget that as Christianity spread in these early days, so did persecution. Followers of Jesus were the targets of, of evil and malicious people like Saul. Again, this is Saul's mission. This is a true story. This really happened to believers like all of you. Verse 1 again, it makes Saul's Mission clear, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Luke leaves no doubt who Saul is hunting. He first calls them disciples of the Lord, but then he refers to those, notice what the text says, belonging to the way. Belonging to the way. This is, this is not the only time that followers of Jesus are referred to as those belonging to the way. We'll encounter it five more times throughout the book of Acts. But brothers and sisters, I love I love that this is one of the ways the early Christians identified themselves. I love that it points to the word and work of Jesus. 
So imagine a conversation where, where someone comes to you and says, who, who are you? And you say, I'm one who belongs to the way. Immediately, you're, you're deflecting their attention to the word and work of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of this uh, when Bill and I were overseas uh, over the last several days, we met a man named Hans who works with a mission board. And this is how he's 6'8", so we're similar in size. We, we talk to each other. He, this is how he introduced himself. Hi, I'm Hans. I'm a gospel man. That's wonderful. That's wonderful. This is how they referred to themselves. Obviously, this is taken directly from John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. For these early Christians, their very existence was defined by the gospel. Their identity and their mission was inescapably bound to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So much so that they were known as people belonging to the way. That's who they were. And I think there's a challenge for us here. Have we so compartmentalized our faith that we are not known openly as those who know, love, and follow Jesus? Is our identity more defined by our jobs and our politics and our hobbies than it is by our faith in Christ. L let me ask the question another way. If the persecution of Christians began to run rampant in the United States, and a man like Saul began hunting followers of Jesus, would he have any reason to come after you? Would he have any reason to come after you? May God grant us the grace and courage to live boldly as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, as those belonging to the way. Saul's evil mission was to destroy Christians and Christianity, but God had other plans. In the midst of Saul's evil mission, we see God's glorious intervention. God's glorious intervention. This is found in verses 3 through 9. Look at verse 3. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. As Saul approaches Damascus, something terribly surprising happens. A blinding light appears with such brilliance that it knocks Saul to the ground and takes away his sight. Saul, in many ways, is the picture of earthly strength and power. And he's knocked to the ground in an instant. He's no match for God. A voice then speaks in verse 4. He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, 
Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The risen Christ has appeared before Saul. And in a moment, Saul is confronted with the reality of what he's been doing. In persecuting the church, Saul has actually been persecuting Jesus himself. Verse 5, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Uh, Let me quickly make two points here. First, I want to point out that the initial step in Saul's miraculous conversion is that he's confronted, he's confronted with the depth of his sin. Saul needs to understand the true nature of his sin. He hasn't simply been engaged in wrong behavior, but he's been rebelling against and persecuting the Lord Jesus Christ. Saul's sin was an attack on God himself. Friends, it's the bad news of our true condition before a holy God that makes the good news so infinitely good. I'm sure you've faced this temptation. I've faced it in sharing the gospel with someone. You you want to downplay the bad news and just talk about the good news. But friends, that's not the way it works. The bad news of sin and God's wrath must be exposed so the sinner cries out to Jesus. In his excellent book called Conversion, Michael Lawrence writes this. When we fail to preach the justice of God and downplay his wrath, we are talking about some other gospel. We have changed it from an objective rescue to a subjective path to personal fulfillment. Saul didn't need a new and better path to personal fulfillment. He needed to be radically rescued from his sin. He was lost and he was running hard toward eternal damnation. But God intervenes. Second, this reminds us just how intimately Jesus identifies with his people. When those who are united to Christ by faith are suffering persecution, Jesus identifies with them in their suffering. What a comforting truth. Now, once Jesus has knocked down Saul physically and confronted the heinous reality of his life's mission, Jesus exercises his rightful authority over him. I love this. Saul Saul had the appropriate papers. He had permission from the right authorities. But when Jesus enters the scene, he's in charge. Verse 6, 
but rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. This is Jesus' way of saying, you're, you're mine now. Again, Saul possessed great earthly influence and power. He had carried out his mission and crushed his opposition. But now, while he believes he's hunting down Christians in Damascus, he is actually being hunted. And when Christ lays hold of Saul, it's game over. Saul is revealed to be utterly and completely powerless. In fact, this ferocious persecutor, Saul, is now a crumpled heap, laying helpless in the dirt. I'm, I'm sure Saul had envisioned the way he would enter Damascus. Word of his arrival would have spread and the Christians would have been gripped with fear. He would then enter Damascus as a symbol of power and strength and intimidation. But what happens after he meets King Jesus? Like a weak and helpless child, someone has to hold his hand and bring him into the city. Friends, this is a powerful picture of conversion. In our sin, we have the illusion of strength and power. We think we can fix our problems and find true happiness. We, we've decided what we want to do and where we want to go. We've embraced the fantasy that we're really in control. We're our own masters. But what happens when Jesus intervenes and interrupts? We're revealed to be helpless and weak and poor. The gospel reveals who a person really is, and it brings the sinner low. But then what happens? The gentle shepherd takes the sinner by the hand and says, follow me. Now, I need to point out here as well what is likely obvious to all of us. Saul was not looking for Jesus. Saul was not looking for Jesus, wanting to humble himself before Jesus and follow him. Now, friends, this is an act of sovereign power and overcoming grace. While Saul is persecuting Jesus and his people, God intervenes and reveals Jesus to the chief of sinners. Well, no one here shares Saul's exact story. There is a real sense in which every believer here does share Saul's experience. Whether you were converted as a child in a Christian home or as an addict in the depths of despair or as a terrorist and persecutor of Christians, every person who has ever embraced the gospel, turning in repentance and faith to Jesus Christ, has been acted upon by a sovereign and gracious God. If God were to withhold his action, there would be no conversion. 
every true believer shares the same miraculous testimony. And it's powerfully explained by this very man named Saul. As he later writes to the Ephesians, as the Apostle Paul listened to how he describes his conversion and how he describes yours. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works. So that no one may boast. Can you imagine Saul going on from this place boasting about this event as if he had anything to do with it? commenting on those two glorious words in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, but God, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote, with these two words we come to the introduction of the Christian message. The peculiar, specific message which the Christian faith has to offer us. These two words, in and of themselves, in a sense, contain the whole of the gospel. The gospel tells of what God has done. God's intervention. It is something that comes entirely from outside us and displays to us the wondrous and amazing and astonishing work of God. Friends, what happened to Saul, if you're a believer here this morning, it happened to you. Different circumstances, different place. But this is what happened. What Saul experienced on the Damascus Road is what every believer has experienced. This is conversion. For a sinner to be converted, God must act upon him, revealing Jesus, granting repentance and faith. The conversion of a sinner only comes by the sovereign power and overcoming grace of God. This is why we go forward with boldness in sharing the gospel. It's not up to us. I remember a time in my life where I thought that if I didn't say the right thing or present the gospel 
uh, just the right way. The person might say no, and then their blood would be on my hands. And it, it produced such a sense of guilt and fear that I said, why, why even bother? I'll, I'll fail. I'll be guilty anyway. What's the point? Brothers and sisters, when you understand the glory of God in the conversion of sinners, it ought to give you boldness to go, I'll go and I'll tell everyone I I can find about the gospel of Jesus Christ and God through his Holy Spirit will do what only he can do. Charles Wesley so vividly describes the miracle of conversion in his hymn, And Can It Be? You know the words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke. The dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. In an instant, in an instant, Wesley's words became the testimony of Saul. And brothers and sisters, Wesley's words are your testimony as well. In the midst of Saul's evil mission, God gloriously intervenes. But how do we know? How do we know Saul has been converted? This will become abundantly clear as we work our way through Acts. But let's briefly answer that question from our text. We find clear evidence in the next nine verses that Saul has encountered Jesus in a truly life-changing way. So these 19 verses begin with Saul's evil mission. They move to God's glorious intervention. And finally, we see the gospel's miraculous transformation. Let me give you three, just briefly, three evidences of Saul's conversion before we come to the table together. First, Jesus calls one of his followers named Ananias to go and serve Saul. And what will Ananias find Saul doing? Look at verse 10. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. Which is always the right answer if you ever hear the voice of the Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. The persecutor is now praying. One commentator writes, through Jesus and his cross, Saul had now been reconciled to God and consequently enjoyed a new and immediate access to the Father as the Spirit witnessed with his spirit that he was the Father's child. The very same mouth, the very same mouth which had been breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples was now breathing out praises and prayers 
to God. There's only one explanation for that. It's been converted. God has acted. The Spirit has made him new. Friends, this is the miracle of conversion. This is the power of God displayed in staggering beauty. This is a transformed life. Second, notice verse 15. Ananias expresses some fear, which makes sense, about going to Saul because of what he has heard about him. But Jesus shares some heavenly insight with Ananias. Essentially, Jesus says, Ananias, you've heard what Saul has done, but let me tell you who he is now. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Brothers and sisters, this is astonishing. The one whose heart burned with hatred and hostility against Christ and his people is the one God has chosen to be an instrument of his grace. Saul would now carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. This is a blaring reminder that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. No one. Maybe you're here this morning and you are well aware of your brokenness and your sin. You're tempted to believe that you're you're beyond the reach of God's grace. Oh friend, please know that God's redeeming grace is only given to sinners. It's only given to sinners as our friend David Ward has so beautifully written and I can almost hear I can almost hear Saul singing these words with tears in his eyes. There is no sin that I have done that has such height and breadth. It can't be washed in Jesus' blood or covered by his death. Finally, look at verse 17. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul. Listen to what John Stott writes about verse 17. He said, I never fail. I never fail to be moved by these words. They may well have been the first words which Saul heard from Christian lips after his conversion. Brother Saul. What a beautiful scene, friends. Only the gospel can do this. Just days earlier, Saul would have threatened and seized Ananias by force. And Ananias would have hidden in fear But God, but God who is rich in mercy 
turned enemies into brothers. This is the transforming power of the gospel. May we never forget it. May it influence not only the way you you understand your own conversion, but may it influence the way you see others. The The way you pray for those who you are tempted to think are way beyond the reach of God's grace. I remember a couple of years ago when there was a rash of news stories about members of ISIS beheading Coptic Christians. And there was outrage over that, as there should have been. But I remember one pastor putting something on social media, and it was a prayer. It was a prayer not only for those who would be affected by your family members and friends who were brutally murdered, but his prayer was, convert one of those men. Make them the next Apostle Paul. So do we have the boldness and the confidence in the transforming power of the gospel to pray like that? I I hope so. I hope the Spirit uses this text, this true story, to give us confidence to pray boldly for the gospel to change even the chief of sinners. Let's pray.